Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Can everyone hear me good? Hi. I am uh, very honored to be here tonight and to share my story and my um, career and my lifetime passion of being a nurse in the Air Force and in my civilian job. Um, before I get started, I want to let you know I want to thank all the people that have served, that have family members serving out there, and those that will serve in our future. I have been um, blessed to be in the Air Force Reserves, and I joined as an older nurse, and um, it has been an exciting adventure, and I'm going to share my story for you for what it was like when I started there in Afghanistan and how we go about picking up a critical care patient. So everybody know what CCAT is? You've heard of the Critical Care Air Transport Team? consists of a physician, which is usually trauma, or an anesthesiologist, a critical care nurse, a respiratory therapist. It's a team of three. We can take up to six critical care patients, three which is on ventilators or breathing machines. So it can be a very busy mission, and you are the only team in the air. And if you think about it, in the hospital, if a patient gets bad, you call a team. Well, in the air, there is nobody. You have to rely on each other. So it's definitely a team effort. Um, this is one of my pictures. Also, do you know the CCAT teams? We don't, we don't just transport our own forces. We also transport coalition forces. About 40% of the patients I transported were all coalition forces, Romanian, Bulgarian, Brits, Germans, and Canadians. This is Danny Scott. This is Danny Scott that I transported February 14th of last year, who came into us with a pancreatic injury, and we were sending him up to Germany for more care. I still keep in touch with him and his family today. I do have some humor. As nurses, we all have humor. So, and especially being a nurse in the military, you wake up and don your U.S. Air Force combat uniform, complete with boots and dog tags, and you accessorize it with a stethoscope, trauma shears, and a pin light, and feel more pride in that uniform than you do in hospital scrubs. This is the day I landed back in country at March Air Force Base, and I found out that I was going to be the chief nurse of the 7 Meds. My team, very blessed to have a wonderful team. On the right is Doc Ryan, in the middle is my respiratory therapist, which is Ruben, and then me on the left. We wear the mask, and I'll show you later on why we wear the mask. And we're in the back of a Humvee on our way up to Camp Bastion to pick up a patient. And you'll see why we're wearing the mask, as you see in the dust in a few minutes. This is a turret. He's standing in a turret. Does everyone know what a turret is? This is where a lot of our injuries are coming from our patients that come in. You're supposed to be seated in that and buckled down, but then they can't see very well. So when they hit an IED or a roadside bomb, they're usually thrown from those vehicles. This is camp. This is where we camp every night. This is Camp Kandahar. How many of you know that Camp Kandahar has 50-plus different countries in that base? So it's no hat, no salute, which is kind of nice because you never know what rank is which, and you do learn very quickly. Bottles of water, because you're not allowed to drink the water out of the tap. You brush your teeth with that, and you drink that only, because you don't know what's the best way to contaminate your troops is through their water source. But we don't know what their um, purification system is, so most of it you can shower, but you can't drink it. This is my cubby. Imagine living in an 8 by 10 little cubby. There's six women to a room, and there's seven rooms and a mod, and there's one bathroom at the end. So do the math. Six times seven is 42, one bathroom, three showers, two toilets, and four sinks. These are bunkers. And if you notice, they're all surrounded by the mods. We are very well protected. But when the alarms go off, you have two minutes to hit the floor. Um, after two minutes, you head to the bunkers. 
This is what they look like when they're empty. And this is what you look like when they're full. Sometimes you can stay in there for a long time, and sometimes you can clear when they find it's safe to get out. So we called them bunker parties. So sometimes we'd be in there, and we actually sometimes had lawn chairs in there and snacks and food and water because you never know when it would be time to go out. And two and three hours is a long time to be sitting in there. So you get to know your tent mates and your bunker mates really quickly. And also, if you're working in the hospital, you have to take all your patients out there, too. You can't leave them in the hospital. The only ones left behind are the ones on ventilators or breathing machines, and it's usually a nurse and a tech that's left behind to watch them in full gear. This is our bathroom. This is what you use every day, and we don't have to clean them. You know, as a male trainers win, showers become available, and you comment that four minutes is a waste of time and three minutes is plenty of time. So those women that are out there, you decide whether you want to wash your hair that day or you want to shave your legs that day. So you can take your pick. <laughs> it's true. We also have to clean our mod. Mod gets very dusty. The dirt over there gets in everything, including equipment. You can clean that day, and the next day it's all muddy and dirty again. So we actually have to dust and vacuum and mop every day. Stressors of flight. These are things as a nurse that I think about when my patients are flying. There's a lot of things when you fly in the air because sometimes they're pressurized and sometimes they're not depending on their injury. You have to worry about pressures of oxygen, barometric pressure, the humidity, the temperature. If your patient's cold, they don't heal very well. You can start a whole coagulation cascade, which can cause them to bleed out. You have the noise. You have vibration. Imagine being critically injured, and that plane is shaking and and vibrating quite a bit, and you have casts or splints on, how painful that is. And G-forces, landing and taking off, and a head injury patient. We have to think about how we're going to load them. We're going to load them head first. We're going to load them feet first on the plane an increase of fatigue. Some of these times these kids are up for days at a time. These are the kind of patients that we took care of and, and transported. Burn patients, head patients, blood dyscarias. We were exposed to the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, which is an Ebola virus while we were there. Trauma patients, ventilated patients, chest tubes, cardiac and respiratory patients. A lot of patients had heart attacks out there in theater. Abdominal surgery and cast management. With barometric pressures and partial pressures of air, people that have casts, you have to bivalve them because as gas expands within their air and the cast is too tight, you can cause them further injuries. You have to make sure you bivalve, which means splitting the cast up the side. These are your typical burn patients that we have when we come in there. Some of the patients that we see, are uh, most of them are our forces and coalition forces. Some of the pictures are graphic. And it's not meant to exploit our troops at all. It's what we see day in and day out. It's what we do to take care of our patients and where we start and where we end up and why they come back to the state and some of the conditions they do. Um, Part of the burn patients you have is like when they have compartment syndrome. And you'll see in this picture right here where you have to do escarotomies. You have to relieve the pressure because the skin is so tight. Otherwise, they get compartment syndromes. They can lose limbs things you have to think about for flying. Multiple burn patients. You can actually, in some of these pictures, look and see how many of you know we have helmets and flak vests. How many of you know where the flak vests used to end? They end right here. So take a look at where, what's burned and what's not burned on these patients. And actually it burns through their clothes and their shoes. We have chemical burns too, because remember some of the bombs they have, they put whatever they can in there. How many of you think about flying shrapnel? You hear about they put bombs and animals and stuff on the side of the road, or suicide bombers. 
We know that our shots are up to date, right? But theirs aren't. How do you know they don't have hepatitis, HIV? So when our troops come back, we know they've been exposed to a suicide bomber. We have to do a lot of testing on them, make sure that they're protected against HIV, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and other diseases that are out there. Look again where his burns are. Can you see where the flash burns are? He actually did very well. Superficial burns, you can treat that very easily and he won't scar very well. Another one, you can see where the back of his helmet was, just where it ended and his arms are exposed. Now the new flak vests, a lot of them have the shoulders. And you'll see in some of the gunshot wounds that we have in here why it's important to have those longer shoulder pads. This is another chemical burn that you have. He actually had his arm out the Humvee. A lot of head injuries as well. Some troops, it gets so hot out there that they take their helmet off and then they have to wipe their brow. Well, they're watching. So no matter how hot it is, you have to keep that helmet on, and that's what we teach them. Sometimes, too, is they'll put the bandanas in their hats to help with the sweat because it gets so sweaty. The helmets haven't changed much from years ago where it still has the leather inside that's still kind of rough, so it still makes you sweat a lot, and you need something to absorb that. So you leave that helmet on at all costs. This patient is um, a patient that was actually um, in a shrapnel. There were some before pictures in here. We have trauma surgeons that are phenomenal. This guy came in and we're going, oh my gosh, it's terrible. The surgeons that we have, and do you know that coalition forces are operating on our surgeons and we're operating on their patients as well. They are, their technique is great. We have 98% survival right now. And we are able to save pretty much anybody and everybody. They do a phenomenal job on saving our troops and the techniques they have. And to work alongside a German surgeon one day was just great. I learned a lot from her about ostomy care. Back of the head. How many of you have seen some of the other helmets where they're shorter? Now they're getting the new helmets out that are longer because of the protection that they can get from the back of their heads. We have some great technology out there. We have CT scanners and x-rays. Everyone knows what a CT scanner is, right? Everyone knows what an x-ray machine is, right? I had somebody ask me, well, why don't you have an MRI machine? <laughs> a war zone, MRI, what happens with MRI? What does it attract, metal? So I says, we don't have any of those in theater. But you can see we can get better pictures with a CT scan on these patients to find out why they have, what's wrong with them, and get them fixed. Do they need a drain in their head? We don't have to wait anymore. We can actually start them in Kandahar and Bargram, get tubes and drains to drain any pressure in their head and get them on up to Germany. This is another. This is the new 3Ds that they have out there. Is that not cool? You can see exactly what's wrong with that, and that's down in Kandahar as well. And you can see what's wrong and where they have might have shrapnel or something before you take them to the OR. Mass casualties. Mass casualties come in in droves. You never know if they're one or two. In my civilian hospital, when we have a mass casualty come in, we just get on the phone and ask people to come in. When we have a mass casualty over there, they actually put a call in. Everyone's pager goes off. Manpower, more people come out of the woodwork. Pilots come out before pilots would never come out. I have seen pilots come in to comfort patients wash their face, sit and talk to them, and hold their hand, which is truly heartwarming. It's truly everybody's there to help everybody else out. This is open heart massage. If you haven't seen this before, they do everything they can to save anybody. Shrapnel, fl flying shrapnel pieces, that's actually a piece of bone from an animal that went flying. This is, uh, have you know what an M60 is? This guy was hit with an M60, and he unfortunately 
He did not make it, but they were trying to find out where he was. Sometimes they can patch it, but they just couldn't find and stop the bleeding in time on him. Flying shrapnel again. Pieces. Everyone knows what shrapnel is, correct? They fly. They actually cut through his clothes and through everything and just cut the whole top part of his leg off because it, it was just flying. And you think of velocity and speed of stuff that's flying through the air. They go from being in there to the trauma surgeons, and they actually the trauma surgeons will actually go directly into the OR. This is actually the OR suite, and they have tourniquets. Everybody in theater, foot soldiers, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, all have these new tourniquets out that are on there, and we all carry medical packs. So there's, everyone is taught self-aid and buddy care to put tourniquets on, and those tourniquets save this guy's leg. Never use your own, though. X-rays, another x-ray of a foot. The next couple of pictures are showing you why, why our troops are coming back with amputations. Some are salvageable and some are not. Some have external fixators, which we'll show you, that can help realign, but some the vasculature is just so far gone that they can't manage it anymore. This is one of those I told you, it's just not, the limb was not viable. So it's one of them, unfortunately, that lost a limb. This one was. This one was able to put an external fixator on and save him. You can see that he has multiple fractures. If you can see the other one up here. This guy had his hand and was um, trying to disarm something, and he was too close. So they actually ended up um, sewing that rest hand that closed. Wound care is very important. How many of you know during the Vietnam and Korean War, most of the troops died of wound infections because they didn't have anything? Nowadays, the wound infection rate is 98%. That means only 2% get an infection of some type. Same kind of problems that we're fighting in the hospital. Everyone's heard of MRSA, VRE, Cinebacter. Same problems are occurring over there. When we did the um, wound care in there, there... There is no standard protocol that we're trying to initiate now in theater for coalitions since we're taking care of each other's troop. Just basic wound care is enough to decrease the infection rate another percent or two, so it might be 100% decrease so we won't have any infections. When you do um, a wound care, a lot of it is surveying the wound and looking to make sure there's no extra debris in there, making sure that there's fractures. We have found fractures um, on patients just by doing basic wound care because when you do a first and second degree on a mass casualty, you're looking for what's basically wrong with them. Sometimes you'll find something that the enlisted will find it. They'll do a great assessment on these patients, remove a dressing that didn't look very like it was something important, look underneath and found shrapnel stuck in them, and they'll actually go to the OR and debride it. And sometimes it can cause problems. Pre-medication. How many of you know our troops don't like to have medication? They don't. You know, they say, oh, they're wimps or something like that. They're not. They think it's manly not to have their pain medication. So we have to really convince them, take your pain medication. You're not going to heal unless you have pain medication. In-flight route is not the place to do a dressing change, a tube change, start an IV, or intubate. Everyone knows that intubate a patient means put a breathing tube in them because it's dark. There's no room on those planes, which you'll see in a minute. The increase of contamination, because you don't know what's in that plane, and there's no place to put the dirty dressings when you're doing that. So you try and do infection control in there. And weather and turbulence. How many of you have flown in the planes, especially in a combat? Was my first experience this time was where you circle, and then you dive again, and trying to take care of a patient doesn't work really well. 
and the temperature inside. They're better now. From what I heard from some of the vets talking to them, the planes used to be really cold, very uncomfortable. Now they're able to control at least the C-130s and C-17s. KC-135s, not so much. But they're getting better at doing the um, weather control. Um, part of my certification is I was actually doing some scalpel debridement, sharp debridement on a patient. And the guys, the tech actually found this said back there was Major Lake. says, Major Lake, this guy is complaining his arm's still hurting. They had actually, you can see the circle debridement that he had in the OR. So I went and he actually had some more debridement that was festering and coming up. So I actually ended up cutting in a little bit more and removing some of that. So you teach your techs how to do dressing changes. Gunshot wounds. Does anybody know what that is? An M16? Went through and through. This guy was really lucky. It went through here and back out the other side but just to look at the wound and contamination on that. An M16, a little bit bigger hole. He had his arm like this getting ready to shoot, and it went right through. He actually broke his humerus, which is the bone right here. And this is the external fixator I was telling you about. It's a temporary fix for the patient till he gets up. He'll have to have what's called another Weishout or another debridement as he gets to the next level of care, which is usually Germany before they head back home. He was awake, alert, and oriented at that point. But again, pain medication was a problem getting him to take anything. Chest x-rays, a lot of chest x-rays, um, getting a lot of gunshot wounds and they come through the side, okay? or they fall out of the turrets, or in motor vehicle accidents, which they do too when they hit a roadside bomb. Get a lot of um, broken ribs. And anybody can spot, other than the one right here, do you see any other broken ribs? See one way over there? So the 3D x-rays are great. And this right here, this long one, does anybody know what this is? Chest tube. <laughs> Everyone know what a chest tube is? It's to help with relief pressure in your chest, or it's collapsed long to help get it inflated again. Gunshot wound again with an external fixator. Interesting exit wound on this one. This one is one of my favorite. Happened to go to the OR. <laughs> you, you, you laugh. It's funny. Do you know how many times? This book is in 2004. Do you know when they first came out with that book? World War II. You betcha. And they've just evolved since then. As a CCAT nurse, I have to know that book too. As a CCAT nurse, I do chest tubes, needle crags, surgical crags, venous cut downs, A-lines insertions and pretty much a couple of other things, too. So we have to know that, too. Or if the doc's busy with a trauma patient on the flight, I have to be able to recognize something and be able to say, hey, you need to fix this over here on this patient. So it's kind of like it's a team, definitely a team effort. But it is pretty funny, isn't it? There was, and I happened to be in there, there was an interesting um, vascular procedure in there, and he knew he read it in the book. So he says, go get my book, and we all carry those. And mine's got all these tabs on there. But he found a way to bypass it, and it was with using some kind of special graph that they had. And that's what he remembered using it. So if you don't know, you use your resources, right? And that's his resource. How many of you have seen a liver laceration? The flak vest, especially for me, I'm tall and I have to wear a small, only comes up to here. So what's right here? That's actually a liver laceration on that person. So stuff gets in there and pings around. And this is a fasciotomy, and that's actually somebody's leg. Does anybody know what that is? Fasciotomy? Remember in the um, 
The burn patient, we talked about an escarotomy with the pressure. When somebody fractures a long bone, what happens? It gets black and blue, it swells, right? Well, the skin is holding it. If it's a closed wound, it'll, the swelling and swelling and swelling. How many of you have your arm fall asleep, right? From something, or you've had, I used to wear those knee socks with the rubber bands, your legs fell asleep? <laughs> Dating myself. The fasciotomy is done on both sides of a leg or an arm or sometimes your thighs to relieve that pressure. If the pressure is not relieved, blood will keep, continue to build there and put pressure on your artery, nerves, and veins. You can actually lose a limb. So it's actually a way to relieve pressure. Did we create another wound? Yes, but did we save his limb? Absolutely. Flying shrapnel. This is um, something that they pulled out of someone's belly. The velocity is just incredible. Now I'm going to show you. We're going to start with how the patients come in. We still use the same helos that they've used the last few years. And I tell you, when you hear those come in, it's kind of emotional. And everyone's kind of waiting to see what comes off of it. Um, when they call a mass casualty, our team has actually helped with the mass casualty because they're another trauma team to come in. Um, when they come in, you, you wait to see if they're going to bring them in or they just leave them out on the tarmac. They leave them out on the tarmac. It's very heartfelling and um, very emotional for everybody. So they come in and they get triaged. But I want you to see who else is out there other than the U.S. uniforms. Does everyone see the different uniforms out here? Canadians, Aussies. They all take care of our own, of everyone else's troop. In Kandahar, the Navy runs it. There's Aussies, Brits. There's a French surgeon and a German surgeon there when I was there. doesn't matter what uniform you have on. This is what the trauma bays look like. This is the old one. When I left there, they finally opened up the new hospital. Kind of archaic, kind of like a, a new modern mash. It's in a wooden building. And the OR suites were off to the right. But it served their purpose. They go directly from there to the OR to the, the right-hand side. They had two OR suites, and if there wasn't any OR suites available, someone needs to go, they did it right there in the trauma bay. Okay, then after the patient, why the patient's usually in surgery, and they know that we're going to be taking the patient, we usually actually carried cell phones, and we got alerted. So we go to the AOT, which is where we go get report, find out what's coming in. They're putting the patient into the JPMRC, how do you guys know how the patients get into the system? When a patient comes in, any Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, and they need to go home or go to Germany, they're put into a system. We have a team of nurses and techs and a flight surgeon that oversees that. They start putting this information into the system saying, hey, we need this person out right away. They're, er, they're either um, categorized by urgent, priority, or routine. Urgent patients, we have 12 hours to get them out of theater. Priority patients, we have 24 hours to get them out of the end. It means they're, they're critical, but they're stable at the time, and they'll be okay to, to wait. And then the routine ones are 72, like the gunshot wound. He's got good pulses in his hands. They meet a certain criteria. We have 72 hours to generate a mission to get him out of theater. So if you think that patient came in, went to the OR, I have 12 hours to get him out of theater, they alert us right away. So we start gathering our gear. We look at the reports, see what they need. And then right when they come out of the ORs, we'll go to the ICU and we'll start packaging this patient up. If they meet our criteria, which is a whole other thing, we will package them up, which could take another hour because we have to make sure that they have certain criteria for us to fly. Because remember I said about not being able to put tubes and drains in the air? 
They have to have a tube in their nose to decompress their stomach. They have to have a Foley to decompress their bladder. If their airway is compromised or they're not able to breathe on their own, they have to have a breathing machine. They usually have to have a central line. Because how many of you have had an IV in your arm? And they don't last very long sometimes. And when you're trying to recover someone and push fluids in, you need something that's going to be able to handle that. So they usually had a central line. And they had an arterial line. An arterial line is sometimes they had injuries on their arms and you couldn't monitor their blood pressure. An arterial line is a special line for us that goes on a monitor that we can see what their blood pressure and heart rate is every second. So we get our report, and the first thing I do is I make my bladder gladder before a flight. And you'll see, and I'll tell you why in a minute. This is our gear. CCAT people, we carry 800 pounds of our own gear. We carry enough gear to sustain six critical care patients, including ventilators, triple channel pumps, suction machines, um, O2 equipment, extra equipment in the air. If we have to do a crike, a chest tube in the air, put in an extra line, we have everything in those bags to do it. And we carry them ourselves. We actually lift them and load them. So these are the equipment considerations that we have. The AMBIT PCA pump is a patient care analgesic pump, so some patients can push their own button. Striker nerve blocks. Sometimes instead of... Um, giving them all the pain medications, they'll do a nerve block. If you've ever had orthopedic surgery or something where you have a really painful surgery, they'll put a block in that limb so you don't have a lot of pain. External fixators, we talked about that. Cast care, splints, um, cardiac, and a zone monitor. Some patients are so unstable that sometimes we have to have a cardiac monitor. And you have to either, um, they'll code. You know what the code, word code means? We'll have to jump start their heart. We have to carry that. But you have to tell the pilot before you jump start them. <laughs> because we were told that it could interfere with the plane. Triple channel pumps, that's the IV pumps, and oxygen tanks. On a C-130, is everyone familiar with what they carry? They don't carry oxygen, so we carry converters on there. We actually carry electrical converters on there. As a CCAT team, we have to look and see, this is what takes so long when we plan. We have to look and see how much O2 they're going to need from the time they're from the hospital to the plane, how much O2 they're going to require on the plane, how much O2 they're going to have from the, from the plane to the hospital for ground. You have to tell the pilot how many amps you're going to pull on every piece of electrical equipment you're going to plug in so he knows how much he's going to need when he starts that engine up. This is the dock. We're on our way to package a patient up. How many of you know what a spine board is? With the, those orange things that usually the paramedics or EMTs in the civilian jobs put you on, Air Force has something better. That yellow thing, you're going to see it in a minute. It's called a, it's a new spine board, a vertebral spine board. It's fabulous. We have a patient we're going to go pick up on a spine board. We have to think, okay, this patient, what we're going to put on the plane, we put on that truck. What we need to go package our patient up, we have to start thinking, we're going to need a ventilator, we're going to need a suction machine, we're going to need um, a triple channel pump or two triple channel pumps. We're going to need who, may, who knows what a wound vac is. Sometimes they need a wound vac. So we carry all that into the hospital to start packaging our patient up. Once you package the patient up, you put them on a litter. You put what's called a black smeat over the top, which we'll show you in another picture. You load all of that electrical equipment on top of that. And then you load them on a bus. And then you load them on the plane. Look how many people it takes to carry one. If you imagine that our average Marine Army guy is about 200 pounds, 
and we're adding 70-plus more pounds of gear on top of that to carry them. And I have a little video that we're going to show you. I actually have two of them that are pretty cool. This is carrying them onto the plane. This is a C-17. Lock them into a stanchion. How many have you seen the inside of a C-17? And then there's the spaghetti mess on top, which I call it. That's my R2. What's that? On a C-17, they have plug-in for oxygen and plug-in for electricity, so I don't have to think a whole lot when I have to calculate O2 and electricity. Thank God for AE. The Aerivax teams. This is, um, now we're in the plane, and we're flying out of Kandahar. This is what Kandahar looks like right outside the base. It's a lot of agriculture. And this is important. Why? Is because every day about 5, 6 o'clock, we would get mortar attacked or something lobbed into the base. And the rumor has it from the secret squirrels, I call them, is that the farmers would do their job, and then that they would be lobbing stuff into the base. And the story goes with that is that they are threatened by the Taliban to do it. And we could always tell when it was a farmer because it was usually right after farming time was over. They would find stuff that was mortared or launched into the base in wells and right outside their field in haystacks and stuff. So that's kind of like when we knew. This is another great picture of the agriculture. And that's where we get some of our food is from them. But we have to make sure it's washed and inspected before it comes into the base. Fruit and vegetables aren't really plentiful over there. You get them, but when, like when they get bananas, if you're not there right when the DFAC opens, you can forget getting a banana. <laughs> inside a C-130, you saw the inside of a C-17. Look at the difference in this. This is at night. This is a night mission. And when we take off, everything's got to be dark. Does everyone know why? You're a sitting target, even out those little windows. This is going to be a takeoff. Doc loved me because I had everything marked. I was real anal. <laughs> um, you always know you were going someplace that wasn't really safe to pick up somebody that was really injured that couldn't make it to um, anything other than a fob. And this is a raven is what I call them. They're actually, I call them secret squirrels. You knew when they were on your, your plane that you were going someplace that wasn't going to be very safe. They get off the plane before you even do. They get out with their weapons loaded and look and make sure it's safe. They escort you to wherever the tent or wherever the patient is to package them up and send them back. Shot at a couple times, but thank goodness they were bad aims. This is on a way. How many of you have heard of the Hellman District or Camp Bastion or Leatherneck? This is on our way down to there to pick up patients. The topography is very interesting. This is all red, and all of a sudden you can see like a demarcation that it's mountains kind of biblical. Think about it. Remember the mask I told you we were wearing? 
This is why. We're in the back of that. They're coming to pick us up. That's what it looks like. And this is the end of the runway. We had to get off to the very end because other planes were coming in. So when you're sitting in the back of that and that's kicking up that dust, we were filthy dirty before we even got off, got off to go get the patient. So, But that's how we go get them. The inside of a C-130, again, and just to show you that there's a team effort. This guy's watching. He was great. He used to come over and found him on a lot of our. He's actually a maintainer on the plane. And he would always say, you need anything? You're doing okay? Is the temperature okay? You need a blanket? No, we're fine. Speaking of blankets, this blanket was made by uh, some women on the East Coast. Um, thanks to your efforts and many other people, our troops are kept warm. How many of you have been, how many of you like wool? Oh, good. <laughs> Nobody else does. <laughs> when you're injured, you're burned, you have really bad injuries. Do you know when you come in as a trauma patient, they cut your clothes off? So what do you have on? Not a whole lot. We have had multiple people that have donated sweats and T-shirts and underwear and socks so we can have something to put on them because their fob could be how many hours away for clothes to wear. And then the blankets. This is a quilting club from somewhere on the East Coast in Virginia, a friend of mine, and they did quilts and they wanted to help. And I said, the blankets that they're sending us are too big. Some people made some. But if you think you're on a litter and it's only this big, you just need something to cover just the basic, and it's not hanging off and in the way. And these quilts, and I made sure that they went home with these patients. They had their name on them, and when I dropped them off in Bagram or in um, Germany, they made sure that they had a label on it so the patient could carry that back with them. And each one had a tag on it. Also had a Girl Scout troop. Some seven- and eight-year-old girls make rag blankets, and I took a picture of them and sent every, everyone that sent me a quilt got a picture, and I sent it back to them via email at where their blankets were going. Inside a C-130, when they're stacked up, there's actually three patients there. You can see the RT way in the back. He's taking care of a cardiac patient, and another one here, another one here. So when you're in flight and the patient's not doing well, you're supposed to be seated down, but when you're not, guess who gets to stand up strapped next to the patient? It's always the nurse. <laughs> it's always the nurse. <laughs> but usually everyone takes care of a patient. This is a head injury patient. Most of the time you load your patient feet first, but because of stressors of flight, this guy was loaded head first. Studies have shown that you load your head injuries head first just because it does better for their head for pressures in their brain. This is why I go to the bathroom before we take off. <laughs> this is a honey pot, and it's not very conducive to women because, well, <laughs> it, you have to completely strip to go. So, And how many times you take these off and it gets stripped and God knows whatever because guys sometimes miss. So it kind of can be very, <laughs> all right, isn't it true? <laughs> it's true. And there's only a little curtain there, and they like to play practical jokes on each other, as you'll see in a minute. So, <laughs> And the C-130s, you know, are the workhorse and have been around for years. So this was made for guys. This is just like a little thing about like that, and there's just no way I can aim in there either. This is a day mission, and this is the same kid. This is Danny Scott taking him on our way. We actually stopped in Bagram. Now we're on, we're on our way to Germany. We stopped in Bagram with the patient. Bagram is a 
Air Force-run military hospital. It's called a Roll 3. It's a little bit backwards in the Air Force because ours are a level 1 trauma. It's a level or a level 4 in the Air Force. So it kind of goes backwards a little bit. Germany is a level 4 center. Bagram, Kandahar, and Balad are level 3s. They have almost all the capabilities but no MRI. Usually they have um, a cardiac surgeon but not very often. So you take the patient in there, and I'm given reports. You have to give report to this patient, even if you're going to pick them up and take them back in two to three hours, which we did. This guy's going to get reassessed. He's going to go back to the OR. I told you for another washout. When we were checking his leg on the other side in flight, he didn't have a very good pulse, so they think he has a blood clot. So they're going to take him to the OR before we take the seven to nine hour flight to Germany to make sure we can save that leg and there's nothing wrong with it. They're going to go do another washout. I'm given report, and does it look like anybody's listening to you? <laughs> They're not. <laughs> They're not. I came up with a report sheet. So um, on my report sheet, it has everything I did in that flight. And so I usually just make a copy and give it to the nurse. And now they're still using that in theater because you're so busy, you only have a certain amount of time. The OR is waiting for this patient. So they always say, well, what time did you give the medication? What time did you give this medication? When was his last bolus? You know, how did, what is his vitals in flight? And they just knew that even if they weren't listening, that I'd leave a copy of my report, so all they had to do was look. Because I know what it's like in the trauma room, the civilian's like, I'm not listening to the paramedics. I'm already starting my assessment. So then, this is all the equipment on those three patients. See those black things, these SMEDs? They slip right over, usually the pelvis area of a patient on the litter. But even though you may be picking those same patients back up, you have to start all over again. So we'll take all the patient equipment off, throw all the tubing, this is tubing for the ventilator for the breathing machines. That'll all be thrown away because we can't afford to cross-contaminate, right? Because it's really dirty there. So we'll start fresh. We pick up the same patients back up again. So it usually takes about an hour, an hour and a half, to package up one patient to get them transferred over, stabilize your tubes and drains. I'd rather take the extra time and make sure I know where everything is so when I'm in flight, I'm good to go. Also, the pharmacy. I'm also the pharmacist on the plane. If they need meds, I usually have to mix them. In Kandahar, the physicians were, the pharmacists were great. I got so I could just ask for meds because the less time I have to mix meds, and there's always that margin of error, always is. Pharmacists do it day in and day out, can probably do it blindfolded. What do you need, Deb? Well, I'm going to need this drug, this drip. I'm going to need night pride drip. I'm going to need a nice statin drip. I need whatever I need. So she'll say, okay, got it. And two or three minutes later, she'll come back, labeled with the patient's name in a bag. It was great. How many of you know what Tylenol is? <laughs> Do you know that the, um, the Brits and the Canadians have IV Tylenol? It's called paracetamol. So when I went to Germany drop-off patients, I'd get chocolate and bring it back down, like, like in MASH, and we trade. <laughs> paracetamol for chocolate. But it works out great. They're actually studying it in L.A., so they're going to be getting it soon. Okay, you know you're a military nurse when... You witness the pinning of a purple heart on an injured service member's hospital gown. He salutes from his bed and says, thank you. Then when all the VIPs leave, he says to you, this is one medal I never wanted to receive. How many of you have heard that before? Many times. A lot of times it's because they've lost a buddy or a friend. Quick story. One of the patients in a turret we were transporting up, 30 minutes prior to their mission, before they got hit, he had traded places with his best friend in the turret who was killed. 
and he felt guilty for the for I'm um, probably he'll carry that forever with him. So he got a purple heart, but he said he didn't deserve it because he thought that he had killed his friend. On that note, um, from the time that any U.S. soldier or any soldier, but the U.S. particular, does not make it, they are revered from that very moment that they pass away. They are given that same flag to follow them home. They are given the salute that they deserve. They've served their country well. And they're transported out. The most awesome experience I had was when you're in Kandahar. There's 50-plus countries in there, and there are 1,000 people out on that tarmac from every single country, no matter what soldier or from what country they're from. I can't tell you how, what that means. It's just you get this overwhelming feeling that you're all in there together. Some of the hazards that we fly in is dust storms. I thought, oh. So how many of you heard of the haboobs in Arizona? That's where I live. And they go, haboob. I live that all the time. (laughs) So it was nothing. But they still land and take off in that kind of weather. Our pilots are phenomenal. This is um, our last mission with our dock, and someone took our farewell picture. This is actually the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever patient that we transported and the red bag and stuff. So we didn't, we didn't convert, but three surgeons in Germany did. They actually came positive for the virus. They started him on anti-meds right away. The patient did not make it. Um, he expired three days after we got him to Germany, where he had consumed all the blood products in Germany in three days, that they actually had a call out for blood products because they tried to do everything they can. If you think about it, something like an Ebola virus, in theater, you don't have the capabilities of diagnosing that. And it takes a while for those results to come back in, even in Germany. Here's me diligently playing with the pumps, and I tell you, I hate those things. <laughs> Dirt gets in them, and you have to take them out, and you're pounding them, and you're cleaning them. They're just a pain in the butt, but they, but they work. But this picture is a significant. See that blue thing right there? Told you about those new spine boards? The new spine boards are lay flat, and you put the patient on it, and you coon them up and you suck the air out of them. It's made with beads. You can pick them up just like you would on that spine board and every two hours you relieve it and then you push them back up just to get the circulation back. We have no pressure ulcers. Everyone knows what a bed sore is? (laughs) From those things. They've kept them. We've had not one complication with the spine boards. Our spines have remained stable the whole flight. These two patients on here are the two helicopter pilots that, I don't know if you heard that crash and there was two survivors and we had the two survivors on here. And this is a better picture of the spine board. And someone said they wanted to see what my drug box looked like. Well, that's all my drugs in the black box. (laughs) And that's one of the blankets from the Girl Scout troops. Also, too, I am known to be um, MacGyverette. (laughs) And MacGyverette, this is a chest tube. But this patient we picked up down in Bastion. And if you see, um, he is in what's called skeletal traction, where they put a pin through the knee because he had a femur fracture, and he wasn't stable enough to go to surgery to repair it. So they intubated him, sedated. He had a bunch of chest trauma as well. So you see the wire hanging off the end and down the side? 
So I found a piece of metal here at the very bottom, found it out back, we duct taped it to the end, and I hung it down, and that's IV bags. And it kept them in traction. We, we x-rayed them before he left, and x-rayed him and got to Germany. It worked really well. The only thing is, you see where the, the dressing is by his toes? I had to put gauze there so it didn't rub up against his toe. And it was swinging back and forth, so I used a litter strap to hold it. <laughs> Darn landing and takeoff. These are the, the, the spine boards again, but the C-17, you could exercise in that thing. But a lot of times they transported cargo with you. You hardly ever, fuel is fuel. If it was safe to transport with patients, they would put it on there. But they will also generate a mission for one U.S. soldier to get him out of theater if he needs to get out urgently. To get one patient out of theater, it takes an army. It's not just the CCAT team, and I want to make that clear. It takes the ground crew, the JPMRC. It takes people in Scott who's putting that patient in the system, to the maintainers on the ground to get the plane, to the pilots, to the air traffic controllers, to the people in the hospital. It's not just about the CCAT teams. It's a whole team to get. We just happen to be next to the patient most of the time, but, but to get that one mission off, it takes an army or an air force <laughs> full of people to get them out. I just taking pictures out. This is um, Kandahar in the winter time. They have some great. They could ski there, <laughs> but they don't. But if you look down in goggles, there are a lot of villages down in there where you can see that are in remote areas and stuff. We landed in Germany, and they wanted to take off in that. And the pilot goes, "No." The air traffic controller says, "Yes," and the pilot said, "No." So. The air traffic controller won initially. So that's a K-loader. That's a KC-135. That's usually how we got from Germany back downrange. It was quicker. Trip is two hours less than a C-17. It's usually seven hours, six and a half hours on a um, KC-135, and about nine hours on a C-17. But the K-loader, you load it up, and you got it in. So we just, guess what they decided right when we loaded everything up? we're not going. <laughs> Just load everything back, and then you have to put it in the warehouse. So then you have to turn your weapon back in. But we got to stay in Germany at night. <laughs> Some of the things we do after the mission's over, we, everyone knows, uh, have you ever heard what deadhead means? You deadhead back down range. A lot of times we're quick turned. So everyone knew that CCAT teams, we don't get crew rest. We did um, five missions in four days, and two of them were to Germany and back. So you sleep when you can. And if we were heading back on a KC-135 and there's not a whole lot of bed space, the AIRVAC crew and the, the crew on the planes made sure that the CCAT teams would lay down and sleep because they knew there was a possibility of getting quick turned. Truly team effort. Out of the four CCAT teams that we were in theater, there was only three girls. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> and how bizarre was that? In our training, right before you deploy, you have to go to Cincinnati Shock Trauma Center for two weeks. And the three of us were all in the same class, not knowing that we were all going to be in Afghanistan together. Those are uh, two active duty girls on the side, respiratory therapist and Cindy Bond. Cindy Bond is now back in Kandahar again, and um, she's in Germany. And you play with the kids. So we, just, oh, we do. Yeah, it's sense of humor. It's stress relief, especially after you've had a really busy mission and a busy day. 
We transport kids. We transport kids um, from Kabul. This is a uh, five-year-old girl that ended up with a really bad leg injury. We did grafting of muscle and flap on her legs and um, skin grafted it about five weeks later and sending her to Kabul to be with her 11-year-old brother who will be her caretaker. They lost their parents and most of their other family members. Things you do in your spare time. You run. (laughs) This is the NATO gym. How many of you have seen an army gym? (laughs) Sweat tent, right? You actually, this this thing is so clean and so nice, you had to bring an extra pair of shoes and they had to look at your shoes before you were allowed in. So it was always clean and nice, air-conditioned TVs up on the wall. I have a general collection, which reminds me, General Huntley, I need my picture with you before we go. (laughs) I do. (laughs) I caught him right after he came out of the (laughs) port-a-pot. So he was a very nice guy. It's interesting to talk to them because they're human like everybody else, under the same stressors, different kind, to make sure missions get off okay, making sure things are running. So I have a picture of nine generals so far. (laughs) Anytime anybody wants anything, oh, Deb, go ask, and you'll see in a minute too. This is in Bagram. As a, as a friend and a confidant, knowing what we are going through emotionally and physically, you take care of each other. You make sure that they're coping. They make sure they're doing okay. When she went to Kandahar, or if I came up there, we go for coffee while we're getting ready to pick up a patient and head back up range. And the Frenchies. <laughs> the doc was intrigued by this vehicle, and it's a, let me see if I can get it right, it's a aquatic vehicle as well as a land vehicle and it's something that they use is very interesting and they were all excited that we asked about it so we all got our picture with them including the doc so very nice people and they spoke pretty good English but after a while we started um, calling their uniforms by ice cream and to me it looks like pralines and cream <laughs> and this is the gunnership how do you know what a gunnership is when you hear that thing take off you know that things aren't going well Truly respect for those guys, too. In our spare time, you make patches. <laughs> we are called CCAT, right? If you can read that, it says in the litter box in <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> What's litter box made of? Sand. <laughs> Warped sense of humor, sorry. <laughs> and you, you covet those things. Those, those go for, for money out there. You can trade and get all kinds of stuff for that. I live in Arizona. This is in Afghanistan. To me, I see, with the culture, I see a lot of similarities. Um, Our Hispanic population are into color. They're into tassels. They're into all kinds of things. I see a lot of correlation. You talk to them, and there is some similarities. They have a market on base, and um, they come and sell their wares. A lot of us medical people went there to talk to the kids and the culture. We handed out toothpaste, toothbrush, shoes. Shoes were real important. When these kids grow out of their shoes, they find them, or if they're lucky, their parents can buy them another pair. Coloring books, um, matchbox cars. One of the fathers had a really bad acne problem. We found him some face wash, which actually he was so grateful to have. And when you're over there, because of what you do, you, uh, I personally got back in touch with myself and spiritually, and it's uh, one of your coping mechanisms. And... To be able to worship with multiple other countries and you're all underneath the same roof is also another very rewarding experience. At least for me, it was and many others. 
Also, this is um, in the quad. It's in a great big courtyard area where everybody meets and plays football. And there's like a subway and a, some other coffee shops and stuff. It's a 9-11 to remember why we're there. And who knows who this is? Yes. He was a concert there on uh, Thanksgiving in 2009. And um, they are an awesome band. They were supposed to leave that night. The lines were so long for pictures and autographs. They stayed the night until every single person was satisfied and had a picture and an autograph with him. I have a journal, too, from my last two deployments, and he actually signed my journal for me. And they opened this up right before I got there. (laughs) And you know what? It just doesn't taste the same. (laughs) It really doesn't. We frequented this a lot. How many of you know that we can mail stuff out with no charge? So I got a lot of cards. I bought lots of cards before I left. And I had to be real careful on what I told my husband, you know, it would be nice to have because he would mail it to me. I got a shop vac, a microwave, a toaster, a coffee pot. <laughs> so you have to be really careful with what you ask. And I, you just leave it there. And other people are very grateful to have it. And how many of you have people that are deployed and they have internet and you don't get to see them or something's wrong? Well, what's wrong with this picture? (laughs) That's their electrical wiring system. Some days were good and some days were bad. (laughs) And you visit the poop pond. (laughs) Nobody can go without visiting the poop pond. (laughs) This is actually just a few hundred yards from the base and this is where everything gets recycled. You don't stay there long. (laughs) There's a guy in the back, and I guess I asked, there's the way sludge builds up and they have to keep mixing stuff up. You talk about the world's worst jobs. (laughs) It's got to be it. A lot of people volunteer to work in there. They use a lot of the um, city people that come in from Kandahar. They're actually checked before they come on base as workers. Those who clean your bathrooms, your porta-pots. There are a lot of contractors out there that are in harm's way as well. And you enjoy Mother Nature. Um, this is the picture that we, the night we got to stay. We went for a walk in the snow after being in the desert for so long. And it was just very nice to just relax and take a walk and just reflect on everything and just not be where you needed to be that day. And I think that's it. Oh, no. How many have heard of the burn pit? <laughs> they burn everything over there, so you have to be really careful on where you walk. They're getting better about burning it further away and controlling things that they burn. And why people have hearing loss. We're loading a patient, and what's that in the background? Why you wear hearing protection, and I don't know why people don't, but they don't. So that's why you need to wear your hearing protection. You never know, because you're not going to stop that F-16 from taking off if they need to go, and I wouldn't want them to either. And combat air power for America right here, right now. And that was truly our motto over there, and it's truly a team effort. And I think that's it.